I'm going to read to you just the first couple verses. We had a rather long text this week, uh, and so I thought we would break it up a little bit as we go. Let me read the first few verses. This is Luke chapter 10. If you were here last week, you heard uh, just before this, Jesus, it says right in the middle of the gospel of Luke, it's, he's been ministering around Judea, and then it says he set his face resolutely upon Jerusalem where he was going to give his life and to be raised from the dead and taken up into God's presence on behalf of each one of us, on behalf of the world. And he's determined to do this. And so this is the next thing that happens. Luke chapter 10, first few verses. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the gospel of our Lord. Pray with me briefly. Heavenly Father, we do pray that as we continue to hear your word, this written record of your the good news of Jesus and his life and ministry for us, that also uh, it would be a living word, not just a written word, that through preaching and reflection, the Spirit would give each person here in their heart of hearts and in their minds and their lives a healing word, a word of transformation, a word that brings them closer to your love and to your kingdom. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as you probably know, and as many of our friends are probably experiencing elsewhere this weekend, it is a holiday weekend, a national holiday celebrating the 4th of July. And uh, one of the things that you do, obviously, in America on the 4th of July is, especially if it's a long weekend, you find friends or family or neighbors to celebrate with, and you're remembering certain aspects of history, and you are also celebrating with food. Uh, and I love that. I love celebrating with food, with friends. It's great. Uh, one of my favorite things about summer, it also feels like, you know, it feels like the official start of summer usually right about now because school's finally out, people are traveling, it's warm, uh, and you get to get all those summer foods. One of the things that I love to eat the most that reminds me of a lot of pieces of my own history, uh, but also, as we're going to see in a second, New York history, is oysters. And I love eating oysters. Do I have any other oyster fans in the room? Who hates oysters? Because some of you, yeah, oh yeah. So it's like right down the middle. Well, I'm gonna give you less reason to hate them. Even if you never eat them, I'm gonna tell you a little bit about oysters because like a lot of things, you know, you go back to the history of the hot dog, Nathan's, all this sort of stuff. You get a lot of New York history. You get a lot of history when you're talking about food. And oysters was one I didn't realize was as key as it has been in, in the history of New York City. So one million oysters, that's roughly the number of oysters that New Yorkers ate every single day in its heyday in the 19th century. A million oysters a day New Yorkers were eating. Okay, and I'm taking some of this from an article from Atlas Obscura that tells about the history of the oyster in New York City. Archaeologists have discovered New York Harbor, uh, in the New York Harbor area, these things called middens, which are the ancient shell piles that date back all the way to almost 7,000 B.C. So the Lenape Indians definitely had a lot of oysters here and other, other indigenous populations. Uh, they thrived for millennia in these waters around New York Harbor. They kept the estuary clean thanks to their natural filtration abilities. And again, they were a favorite food of lots of people who lived here. When Henry Hudson arrived in 1609, 
there were some 350 square miles of oyster reefs in the waters around New York metro area, containing, get this, nearly half of the world's oyster population, right here in New York City. So European settlers, of course, wasted no time in turning this natural resource into a powerful and, yes, lucrative industry. By the 18th century, immigrants to what was then known as Amsterdam referred to Ellis and Liberty Islands as Little Oyster Island and Great Oyster Island, respectively. The Dutch named the waterfront Pearl Street for a midden, a pile of shells. Uh, they later paved that street with discarded oyster shells. And they were, they were unhappy to find out, even though they named it Pearl Street, that the oysters here didn't actually make pearls. Uh, but New Yorkers started eating them in mass and shipping them to delicacies, delic as delicacies to cities around the United States. And they ate them again, a million a day. It was six cents per oyster. Some of the oysters were almost a foot wide, uh, much different than the ones I see today. And they were everywhere. They were like hot dog stands or in fine dining restaurants. And also just every, every, uh, every person, a sorely democratized kind of food. It says, uh, uh, one, somebody quoted at the time, said, the poor here live on oysters and bread. And that's not it. They actually took the used shells to pave roads all over the city. They were crushed into mortar paste to fuel the building boom. If you go to Trinity Church in Lower Manhattan, for example, it was built with oyster shell mortar paste. And they also burned them for lime, a practice which they eventually stopped because of its acrid smell. One historian, Mark Kurlansky, wrote, the combination of having reputably the best oysters in the world and what had become inarguably the greatest port in the world made New York City for an entire century the world's oyster capital. The history of New York, of the New York oyster, is a history of New York itself. Its wealth, its strength, its excitement, its greed, its thoughtfulness, its destructiveness, its blindness, and, as any New Yorker will tell you, also, its filth. See, they loved the oyster so much, and they built so much, and they made so much, and they went so fast that by 1927 the last of the New York City oyster beds were finally closed for business due to pollution, uh, to the growth of the shoreline through industrial materials and a lack of waste management, over-harvesting, all those sorts of things. New York City's oysters had become too contaminated to eat by the 20s. Now, this feels like a parable of sorts to me, does it not? For all of the things that we do here as New Yorkers in so many ways, not all of the things, but many of the things that we do, many of the ways we treat the resources in our life in a time of abundance, uh, many of the ways we think about uh, what we have in our time, our resources, our power, our money, our relationships, our possessions, that we see them and we indulge in them and we also deep down know that they're going to run out. And if too many of us try to partake, they will be despoiled and ruined Today in the New York Times, there was a quote about the city bouncing back from the pandemic, and it says this quote, which won't be surprising to you, but it says, the city has always been defined by the people who live here. It's a magnet for dreamers, a haven for hustlers, a perpetual motion machine in which the engine is fueled by a human desire to strive, right? Generation after generation of hustle and consumption, and striving, and desire. And you're a New Yorker, unless you're visiting from out of town. And so let me ask you your question, or this question this morning, a few questions. That are, what is your mission in the city? What's your purpose here? What are you doing with your life? What are you striving for? What's magnetizing you to this place for the time being at least? 
And is it merely just your own individual wish fulfillment? Oh, I can go to this college and this will get that degree and I'll get out of here as fast as I can. Or, oh, I came with a little bit of change in my pocket and this is a cool place to do cool things and to see cool shows and eat cool food. Are we always consuming or more often consuming than we are thinking about creating or generating resources for the city or for others? Is it not true that we fear in our own lives or the city and the resources around us that our resources are limited? They're exploitable like these oysters. And eventually, if we're not careful, they're going to be all dried up. Do you think about this perhaps with a relationship in your life? Oh, it's all full of promise and it's new and it's blooming like the flowers at the moment, but you know that at some point it's going to wear out and the newness and the excitement and the fulfillment, the desire is going to fade. You're going to get too jealous. He or she is going to be distant. Or maybe you think this way about a job. It's all upside when you get in, but you feel like you're already squeezing all the juice out of it and it's about to be dried up rind. It could be an apartment or neighborhood you were once thankful for and now all you see is the downsides. It could be a community that you're involved in, from a group to a school to friends to a church. Does it not often feel sometimes like our personal missions, our purposes, are at cross purposes because we've turned into competitors? There's just not enough time and money and space and it's going to wear out. I got to get what I can, get mine. See, here we are in the early seasons of the season of Pentecost in the church year. And for two weeks in a row, happened to be the first two weeks uh, post the merge of three congregations together, have been these calls to discipleship. These questions about Jesus going around saying, you should follow me, that this is the best way to live a full, rich human life that you were designed to live, that bears fruit, that has purpose, that has meaning. Follow me. And last week we heard him tell people that what we needed was focused following rather than to be distracted by this opportunity or this disappointment, but to follow him. And this week, we see a little more detail about what it's like when you do choose to follow him in his footsteps. What following Jesus is like, and if you're exploring Christianity, you should hear this and look at it as we dig into it. The idea of how it's going to change us, what style of life it is, what's the point and purpose to your life once you decide to follow Jesus. See, these people that get sent out, and the, and the 12 disciples themselves, at the beginning when we first meet them in the Gospels, they're just ordinary fishermen. Like any of those people that used to harvest the oysters here in New York Harbor and then take them down to the stall and sell them. Jesus went to find them in their hometowns, and they were working, making the most of the natural resources in the area, eating, resting, playing, going about their business, fishing. This was their point. In life, This was their mission in life, and it came with dignity, God-given, no shame. But then Jesus shows up, and he calls them, and he says, guess what? There's a, there's a time thing here. There was a time that you could do that, but now the kingdom is here. It's at hand. The time has come. And so I need you to change your mind about what the purpose and point of your life is and follow me. And that's what the word repent means, to change your mind, to change the way that you're following and follow me. The kingdom is here. 
believe the good news, and follow me. And so they do. They start following him, and he says, you've been fishing for fish, but now you're going to fish for human beings. We're going to reclaim all of humanity back into the bosom and heart and embrace of God the Father. Let's go get to work fishing together. And that's what is beginning to be fulfilled in our text. As they're sent out, it says, into the harvest. It says he sent them, I'll just remind you, I'm going to read a few more verses on where we finished. He picked 72, he sent them on ahead of him, two by two, together, into every town and place where he was about to go himself. And he said, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And here's what it's going to be like. Go on your way. Behold, I am sending you out like lambs into the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. Don't stop to greet someone on the road. Go your way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace, that is shalom. Peace be on this house. And if a child of peace is there, your peace will remain upon them. But if not, your peace will return to you. But remain in the same house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. The laborer deserves his wages. Do not flit about from house to house. See, the context here of what is actually happening is you have to know a little bit about the ancient Near East or in Rome at the time. Uh, anytime that there was a new ruler in town, of course, this is pre-internet, obviously, all those sorts of things, right? So just imagine for a second, use your imagination, go back there. You're in a small town, a village out in a dusty part of Judea somewhere that's a part of the Roman Empire, and maybe there'd be a new Caesar hundreds and hundreds of miles away, and so they would send out emissaries and ambassadors to come to your town with proclamations, and if I read, I didn't actually prepare one of these this morning, I have some of it memorized a little bit, but if I had prepared it, you'd be surprised to hear how much it sounds like the beginning of many of our gospels, our good news, which was the word. The word was the euangelion, that's the good news, and they would send Good news, a gospel of a new Caesar in town. Caesar is now Caesar Augustus, and he was born this day the glorious savior of humanity, and he will provide for you, and he will take care of you, and all these sorts of things. He would come and declare the pox, the peace romana, upon a town. And so Jesus here is taking a very kingly turn. He set his face to Jerusalem to do what no other king would do. Caesar came with the promises but also the threats of crucifixion and the law and soldiers. Jesus came, we already know, with his face set upon going to a cross himself to take away the fear and sting of death and to give us instead hope in his love and restoration and forgiveness. This is the kind of king he is, and he's sending out emissaries and ambassadors to tell people that God's true king is here. God's true king is here, and he's coming in love, and not in wrath, but in peace. And those who are welcome, welcome that peace and welcome this king are welcomed, and they sit down and feast. And see, this is a huge part of what Christianity is about. It's Jesus taking all that we already are in our time, in our place, in your specific giftedness, your unique creativity, 
and adding to it new purpose, not obliterating it, not taking away or shaming you for your work ability, for your physical state, for your skin color, for your age, for your own trauma or your own joys. None of that. He takes it like he took these fishermen and gives it now a deeper and fuller purpose. We'll see them continue to fish throughout their lives and ministry and after Jesus is raised from that they would still fish, but now they are also fishing for humanity. They are now not just ordinary people going about their daily business consuming. They are being sent out as ambassadors for God's King, the Christ, the Messiah, declaring peace and creating new relationships and healing, it says. They are now, as Thomas Keating puts it, ordinary people doing ordinary things but with extraordinary love. And so the challenge here is for us to change our minds from individualism and competition, from hustle and hoarding, and to believe the good news that in Jesus the kingdom has already come near to you. And if you will believe this good news, then you are given a new mission. A new mission, and here's some of it. Some of the part I read you already I have some points on, so just hear them. They're quick. They're bullet points. We hear from him that a harvest is awaiting. A harvest that even at the moment they can't see, they have to believe in. That there's a harvest of people out there that God has prepared and that there is a Lord of the harvest. They're not the Lord of the harvest. They didn't water. They didn't even sow in this case. They're just going out to reap. And this is also another way to view the gospel, that we are given this harvest, this abundance of God's healing and his restoration and his provision, that there are people all over hungering and thirsting for this good news. We didn't create the conditions for having this new relationship with people and for bringing healing to them and bringing peace and receiving from them as they give back to us and welcome us. We didn't create these conditions. The Lord of the harvest did. One thing that they are to pray for, the one thing that they are to to prepare for and to earnestly beg God for. He says, don't even go with a knapsack. Don't go with a bag. Don't go with extra food. Don't go with a, a, you know, your wallet all filled with bills to make sure you're okay and your credit card. He says, you just go out. But the one thing that you need to keep praying for is for people to go with you. It is as if he's saying the, the world out there is actually abundant because I'm in charge. I have made it fruitful and abundant. You don't need to fear it drying up or running out or coming to an end because the same fresh God that created nothing continues to create. Spring by spring, summer by summer, we go back to a fall and winter. He does it again and again, and he does that in our lives. And because there's just harvest waiting rather than other people being competition for limited resources, instead we can invite others to come on the journey of following and expect that together, Lord Jesus, send more laborers. There's so much harvest to bring in. There's so many people to heal. There's so much injustice to try to correct. There's so much love to give away. There's so many ways for me to spend my time and my talent and my treasures. I don't even have enough. I need more people. Let's go together and give ourselves away. This is what we are to seek. Bishop Leslie Newbigin put it this way. He says, I've been called and commissioned through no merit of my own to carry this message, to tell this story, to give this invitation. It's not my story or my invitation. 
It has no coercive intent. Again, they only went into the homes that welcomed them. It is an invitation from the one who loved you and gave himself up for you. That invitation will come with winsomeness if it comes from a community in which the grace of the Redeemer is at work. And how do you know it's at work? Some of the things that were mentioned in that passage, the practice of hospitality. We should be characterized by the practice of invitation, of going to one another in our need and receiving one another in peace and welcome. A message of shalom, not condemnation or power through politics or any other way of shaming someone. But instead of shalom, to say peace be upon you. We come as emissaries of the one who brings true and lasting peace. And there's no cross behind that to, to fear the way you fear Caesar. Instead, it's already been taken care of. We come with a message of love and healing. And that's what he says. Heal everyone in their houses. Travel light. You don't have to have a huge caravan filled with resources. You can trust that the world's abundant, that the Lord of the harvest will guide and provide. And most especially, he says, I send you out like lambs that our spirit within us together is not the wolves of wall street that he does send us out into but instead like lambs that we come with peace vulnerability sacrifice trust and he says whenever you enter a town and they receive you eat what is set before you heal the sick in it say to them the kingdom of god has come near to you The one who hears you hears me. The one who rejects you rejects me. The one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now this is amazing. What it's saying is that when you practice hospitality, when you speak a word of peace, even in the passing of the peace here symbolically, but also in other ways throughout your week, when you welcome or receive or go to one another, when you travel light and trust the God of provision, when you behave like a lamb, when the wolves have their teeth bared? When you do these things, he says, you can tell people the kingdom of God has come near. It means that you are in the kingdom. You are bringing the kingdom. In fact, he says, if they receive you, they receive me. You, in some sense, are the Christ. You are the king still loving and healing and eating with people when you are sent. And he says the only danger here is what's going to happen. You will have seasons in which it'll be a harvest season. And you will see all sorts of things happening. And you might get really excited, you know, about a building to fix up or new people to get to meet. You might see God doing wonderful things and get puffed up in all that he's doing. I'll just read it here. He says, the 72 return with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over the, all the powers of the enemy, and nothing shall ever hurt you. But then this is the end of the passage. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in any of these powers or these successes or all of the gifts I pour upon you. Don't rejoice in that so much as rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
that the only real danger of running out is not of his gifts or his provision or his giving new life after every death. The only real danger is that we would forget that the most important thing is that our names are written in heaven. And cities at the time had scrolls, and if you were a citizen, you had special rights. And he's saying, your name is written in heaven. You are a citizen of God the King. You belong in his realm of love. You belong to him. To forget that this is the most important mission and purpose we have in life, the best gift that we have in life. That we want to tackle evil. We want to go in mission. We want to do all sorts of things together. We want to see the world transformed. We want to see ourselves transformed. But no matter what happens, before we even go out on this journey, the most important thing to remember is that God loves you. That God loves you from an eternal wellspring of love. Like those reefs used to make millions and millions and millions of oysters just generate it, and all people could do is go out and partake in it. That this is God's love, but it is a resource that you can never use up. And if that is true, then you will always have enough. You will never be, in the sense in which Jesus talks about it, thirsty or hungry. You will be satisfied by something deeper. And if that is true of you, if you are transformed like this, then you suddenly find yourself not competing and hoarding and being terrified and running out and getting dry over and over again, but you find yourself regenerated within by God's love and by the abundance and by the team that he's bringing around you and you go out now and you are free. See how this works? If you think there's enough, then you don't have to hoard your time. The reason that we're always so busy and so we can't squeeze it all in, we think we're going to run out of time. But if you have enough time, you're like, well, it's always tomorrow. I'll worry about today. And today, I have some time to give to you. That's just one example. We can do that with our time and our talents and our treasures. Have you heard of the Billion Oyster Project here in New York City? The citizens came up with this idea. In 2014, it began. And they are now working with like the Harbor School and other places around the city to put one billion oysters back into New York Harbor. Now, those particular oysters aren't edible because they're still such a mess, even after the Clean, or the clean Water Act in the 70s and all that stuff. They're still such a mess that oysters are using their filtration systems now to clean out the entire harbor, to grow again, to remake this ecosystem, to make it less industrial and more organic. It is literally doing that right now. It's filtering out our water, these oysters. It is making new worlds and ecosystems. And it is renewing everything. It should be done by 2035. Not just the putting in the billion oysters, but the actual clean, back as if we're in the 18th century. Isn't that amazing? The world is abundant. It is full and waiting for regeneration and we get to be like this billion oyster project. To be the kind of people that help filter out what we listen to and do and hear and what voices we follow. And instead to try to focus on the voice of Jesus, the way of Jesus, to give ourselves away, to make new worlds so that there might truly be enough for all. This year for us, friends, if we follow Jesus, I do believe 
will be a year of jubilee. We've already seen exiles returning to be together again, and I think he will see us repairing us within and as a community, and Lord willing, as a space and a property. This is a renewal story. The harvest is waiting. Pray for the Lord to send you and others as laborers into this harvest. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.